0: Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode focuses on a topic that matters to you, whether you are in the field, the academy, or the clergy. In this episode of Open Plaza, Dr. Antonio, Tony, Alonso, talks to Dr. Erica Ramirez about his new book, Commodified Communion, Eucharist, Consumer Culture, and the Practice of Everyday Life. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org.
1: Welcome to HTI's Open Plaza podcast. My name is Erica Ramirez, and I am Director of Applied Research at Auburn Seminary. And today, I'm happy to be here with my dear friend, Tony Alonso. Tony, will you do a short intro for our listeners?
0: Sure. Thanks, Erica. I'm Tony Alonso. I'm the Assistant Professor of Theology and Culture at Candler School of Theology at Emory University, where I'm also the Director of Catholic Studies.
1: Tony, it's wonderful to see you. I, um, anytime I get to see you is great. I, I, can't, uh, I can't believe we're here talking about your book, in part because I remember the many years we were together at Princeton uh, in HCI's workshopping. Uh, as you worked on this book. So congratulations for bringing it to life.
0: Thank you so much. I certainly couldn't have done it without our crepe walks uh, in Princeton.
1: Absolutely. And um, I've just spent the last few days with Commodified Communion, and I'm so looking forward to, talk, to talking to you about it, in part because even though I had ample opportunity to hear you develop some of these thinking, some of this thought, at during our time at Princeton, this book ended up being far more um, just a far more robust vision than I even really anticipated at the time. I feel like now you gave me bite-sized versions of those walks on those walks. So I'm totally ready to dive in. Are you?
0: Yeah. Thank you so much.
1: Okay, great. Um, so <clears throat> for our listeners today, we are talking over Tony's first book, um, commodified Communion, Eucharist, Consumer Culture, and the Practice of Everyday Life. Um, you recently published with Fordham, and was recently um, an awarded book for HTI's Book of the Year. So, congratulations again. I'd like to bring in um, listeners who have not yet had a chance to get to know your work, Tony, with a very ground levels level table setting conversation around like what, why why this book, how it participates in conversations about the role of Eucharist um, in the life of, in this case, Catholic communities, although I know that there's a more robust vision here, too, because Catholic communities are not the only ones that celebrate communion or Eucharist. Could you give us an ear for how theologians and theological ethicists have been talking about Eucharist and have they've been thinking about Eucharist, specifically with regard to its role as resistance in this case, in your work um, to commodification?
0: Yeah, thank you for the great uh, question to start. I mean, I think right off the bat, it's important to say that both Jews and Christians have always wrestled with how their worship connects with how they live in the world. And often when there's been a gap between how uh, faithful people worship and how they live, it's been a source of tension. I'm thinking here of passages um, in the Hebrew scriptures like the fifth chapter of Amos, when he rails against festivals and sacrifice and songs until justice rolls down like waters. Or in the New Testament, when Paul rejects the worship of the Corinthians because of their division and their drunkenness and their disregard for the poor. So it's not a new phenomenon, right? to be concerned with the connection between how people worship and how they live. But one of the arguments that I try to develop in the book is that the Eucharist in particular takes force, takes on force in a a whole range of contemporary scholarship as being a site of ethical formation in very concrete ways. And I'm not the first person to make that argument. Um, Katie Grimes has made similar arguments in relationship to the sacraments, Lauren Winner has as well. And they tend to place the roots of that kind of optimism about how the Eucharist shapes us ethically um, in contemporary ethics and people like Stanley Hauerwas, William Cavanaugh and others. And it's definitely there in a very strong way. But I think at least one of the deeper roots of this phenomenon is in the 20th century liturgical renewal. And I think that in a in a what I would call a positive, uh, laudable attempt to emphasize a more vital connection between liturgy and ethics, which for so many generations seemed kind of separate, especially in my own Catholic tradition, they they really tried to stress the relationship in a way that became more and more bold. And so in some of the writings of that era, it centered on particular ways of worshiping, like, if we would celebrate the Eucharist in this way, our worship would truly finally be countercultural and help us resist all of these dynamics in Western culture, especially. And then when they started to see that the liturgy they were trying to renew wasn't doing those kinds of things the way they wanted, they'd reassert you know, particular reforms. Well, we're, not, we're just not quite doing it right. And even some of the scholars, um, as, as I know, connected to things that you care about, Erica, Um, tried to turn to things in like social sciences and and other places to kind of ground these claims. Mm -hmm. And I should add also that many of these hopes for the ways the Eucharist forms us ethically, I encountered first not in scholarship, but on the pastoral level. I mean, as a composer myself who attends many pastoral conferences, I can't think of a conference that I've been to that hasn't in some way stressed this vision of the way the Eucharist shapes us for ethical living. But this optimistic impulse about what the Eucharist does to us ethically in the liturgical renewal, it seems to me gets carried over in a lot of writings on Christianity and consumerism. Mm. And the argument I'm making is that when it comes to contemporary consumer culture, the way many scholars tend to emphasize the Eucharist as a site of ethical formation takes a particular shape, not just as exhortations, but in claims that the Eucharist shapes or affects resistance to consumerism. I see them as implying in some places empirical claims that they're not really verifying with anything like empirical evidence. So Eucharist becomes, to paraphrase Vatican II, the source and summit of Cultural resistance. And I think that's at least one of the roots of the scholarship I'm trying to interrogate in the book.
1: Thank you for that wonderful explanation. It made me think about um just the, the desire. What I hear is a desire for identity. You said the word countercultural, right? Like how do how do, in this case, a given community of the people of God think about themselves like as I as an identity, like what's the relationship to other people who are maybe not this part of community. But I also hear anxieties or tensions about a big category in your work, which is the market. Mm -hmm. So it feels like I'm asking you to describe water because I know that we all live and breathe and have our being, not only as the Christian saying goes, like in Christ, but also um, we live in a commodified world but I want to hear from you, what is the weight or, or felt presence of the market in scholarship? How does that sound? Because I think that's the real burden, like that's the, the direct object of resistance. We're resisting the market. Can you give me a, an ear for this?
0: Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Describing consumer culture or consumerism is like describing water a bit. It, it's a very slippery slope. Um, And when a lot of scholars use those phrases, um, they tend to gather a lot of things under one phrase. It it does a lot of work in in literature um, with a lot of different kinds of definitions. So in my book, I focus on a definition of consumer culture that centers on the phenomenon of the commodity and the process of commodification. I frame consumer culture as a culture in which almost every exchange, economic, cultural, political, even religious, is marked in some way by the processes of commodification. And so following Marx, of course, commodification is that process by which goods become valued in their exchange, right? And they take on an aura of self-evident value, Marx says, abstracted from their actual use. The problems that theologians rightly highlight about the late capitalist culture that flow from this process are many. Um, The ways the market cultivates, manipulates, defers, desire. There's that word that you you just mentioned. um, The ways it malforms our perception of God and and of ourselves. And then even worse are, are the many ethical entanglements that people have written thoughtfully about the ways that companies mask severe power imbalances you know, between corporations and workers and consumers, the ways that we are often severed from the harmful conditions under which all of the products we made and are using even now, um, how they're made, right? right? And so I think these anxieties about this ever-growing force of, of a market that we're increasingly severed from its realities and its sinfulness, to be honest, rightfully drive a lot of theological scholarship. I mean, many of these things, most of these things, all of these things are things that we should be resisting. And that's, you know, that's the scholarship I think that I'm I'm building on and in, in a sense, um hoping to deepen a conversation about. But I, I want to say that I think that they have it right. Like these are these are real problems from a theological perspective.
1: Okay, which brings me to a question because I did get from your book that you are you are in touch with, you're aware of the real troublings that the market brings and how it shapes our life. I think in your work, in addition to the things you've named, there's a, a an awareness that arises from scholars of liturgical life of the malformation of the market, even of our own personal sensibilities, our own alienation from others, our atomization, individualization, the pursuit of easy gratification, those things that, compromised spiritual life, for instance, not just on the collective level, although that is, I think, remains of primary importance in the scholarship and in your scholarship, but even on the individual level, right? This experience of the market is malforming, as you said, into the interior. So with that said, Tony, why? (laughs) Why in Commodified Communion are you challenging um, if, you're, if you've already allowed resistance makes a, 100% sense and is a good theological concern, ethical concern, why does your book challenge resistance as the mode of engagement in Eucharist against the market, that kind of semantic address, right, of toward, the, toward communion away from the market in this sort of dire tension, help me understand why you would want to intervene here.
0: Right. That is um pun intended, the million dollar question. Why, why would I resist resistance? Why are you resisting resistance? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's exactly the right question. And in fact, when I uh you know first started writing this book, and, and even now when people see the title or ask, you know, assume what it's about based on the cover or something, um, they often, you know, will express very passionate feelings about the ways they see consumer culture distorting, um, their communities, their worship, uh, all, all kinds of things in contemporary culture. And they're, they're rightly very, you know, pained by, by some of that malformation that they see taking place. And so they assume that the book is about how, um, I'm going to help them think about how to better resist these things in their communities, which is an understandable assumption. And I always, am kind of, uh, uh, a little embarrassed when I have to tell them, actually, that's not what I'm doing in this book. I'm trying to show the limits of, of that way of thinking, which you know, raises the question like, why are you committing this blasphemy, right? Which right. is <laughs> <Just laughs> what I hear you asking of it. Um, so that's the question. So I think the first challenge, uh, the, the, the limits of using resistance as a category uh, for thinking theologically about consumer culture is one that actually, others have made well before me. And that's that the market is very adept at commodifying even our deepest descent and selling it right back to us at a markup. So, I mean, there are so many great examples of this if you really start thinking about about it. And if you don't be careful, you can become a little cynical. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can think of, you know, the fact that, the most piercing critics of late capitalism, like Che Guevara or Pope Francis or Karl Marx, all of them feature prominently on t-shirts and coffee mugs in in many communities. Um, Or the fact that you can order a a papal encyclical from Pope Francis condemning late capitalism and it'll qualify for Amazon Prime two-day shipping delivered right Mm -hmm. to your door. Um, All of these things um, can often reinforce the very culture we want to denounce. Um, it's a point that Vince Miller has made very, very well in his own work. So that's kind of what I would say is one of the empirical limits of too enthusiastically embracing resistance as a primary category for how we think about theological reflection, that there's a kind of denial about the way our theological resistance is commodified and co-opted. But the central argument I'm trying to make is actually more theological than that. First, I think that casting our gaze beyond resistance makes space for a more distinctly theological account of consumer culture. That is one that doesn't just look at consumer culture in terms of its delusions and it's, you know, all the things that we want to say are false and problematic, but also to take seriously the way religious longings are often expressed in that culture, even when they don't help us resist a thing. And we can, you know, get into a bit of the, the methodology of how I do that in the book. Um, but there are all kinds of ways in which we participate in, in our faith through material realities, which, at least in you know in our context here in the U.S., is often very much um, bound tightly together with consumerism. And so it helps us to see commodities not only as as you know to kind of paraphrase Walter Benjamin as monuments to false desire but also as objects that bear collective hopes. And as a theologian, I think uh, those things are worth tending to even in their brokenness, even in their sinfulness, even in their fallenness. Second, I think it helps us see the church and the Eucharist as they really are. In other words, it helps us, it prevents us, I should say, from indulging in overly romantic versions of ourselves and of our communities that never touch the ground. Mm-hmm. It helps us see them in their, their fleshiness and their materiality. It helps us to see the way in which we're always um, enmeshed in the material of the world, including its complicities and captivities to the forces of the market, even when we most want to deny them. And you know, it's kind of a self-examination, right? As a person who's been very involved in, in worship and music my whole life, to take seriously the way all of the prescriptions I might have for resisting culture are themselves subject to that very culture. So I guess it's a more honest account, if you will, of of our practices and and our communities. Um, And to also, by the way, still love them and see them as graced. Mm -hmm. And then finally, and perhaps most centrally, the the theme that runs throughout the book is that I believe that thinking outside of resistance helps us see the ways that um, grace, Uh, can too easily become instrumentalized into ethics. And that grace is not limited to those moments when we adequately resist the market, um, but is present even in our misshapen desires and our problematic (laughs) participation in the market. um, That grace ultimately uh, doesn't only depend on us.
1: Mm. Tony so many things well stated I have to go back though to this like the third thing you stated or maybe the third point I heard you make yeah and what I think I hear behind it you said so much of what we we can have an idealized version of ourselves that doesn't attend to lived reality isn't a isn't sort of not only aware of our limitations but gets in what I'm hearing you say gets too far away from for instance, in this case, like the way that faith unfolds in, in daily life, right? And I hear that as a particular risk in this case, not only of scholars, but let's just stay with us scholars. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and I want to call your attention and, and give you an opportunity to comment on how you've, how you've arranged your book. By taking an opportunity to talk about how you open your book with this attention to lived, what what in sociology of religion we call lived religion, right? Like, and how personal it is and how moving it is. And I wanna read a little bit from this beginning section where you talk about the campiness mm-hmm. of your abuela's altercito, her altar. So I'm just gonna do a little bit of reading because I want feel like this, this does the work in this space, does the work that you're pointing to in your book and give you a minute to comment about that. So I'm gonna describe the altar in your grandmother's in your grandmother's house. Tucked away on the dresser in the corner of her bedroom, it appeared more like a resting place for a string of arbitrary religious memorabilia than a, le- <laughs> sorry, than a legible site of intimate devotion. Comprising objects seemingly haphazardly arranged on a colorful old bedsheet, her altar was a place where every religious knickknack she came across at a supermarket or shrine found a home. Colorful plastic flowers encircled ultra-bright images of La Virgencita. A pop-up greeting card of the Nino Jesus was propped up against a bedazzled crucifix. Um, I'll skip a little well-worn prayer books and missals burst with handwritten notes, reminders, and petitions. And this is you reflecting what seemed to me in this excessive and arbitrary was for your grandmother, a collection of objects related to histories and stories with particular people, places, and ideas that exceeded the power of any one of these goods. And then I'm going to read your, your own assertion. Even through the strategic strategic operations of the market. So even though a lot on that altar was bought, you know, obviously through these like flows of the market, these at like, publics, yeah. Yeah, at public. Yeah. <laughs> something escapes that reveals more than an aimless, manipulated, and misshapen desire that must be redirected toward a proper talos. And I And I feel like that, I mean, my drop, like that says so much, but I want to unpack that with you because I hear you attending to the something more and we can get to that in a minute, the something more, because I want to hear you more robustly about what that more is. For now, I want to tell you, um, and invite you to tell me how does this, this beginning of your book and different other fragments you've included how does that reflect a methodology that you've put at the service of your reader? What do you, how do you want the reader to be formed by these experience of approximating or coming close to, um, in this case, this example of the fragments of religious devotion?
0: Yeah. Wow. Thank you for that. That great question. And for, you know, you, you write a book and then you don't really read it for a while. So to hear it, and think about my grandmother's altarcito is is always a a blessing. Um, Many fragments of it are right here in this room with me now. Um, So this was actually uh, a very challenging um, thing for me to to write. Erica is asking me about these these four fragments um, that kind of appear throughout the book, right? I offer a kind of different mode of reflection on things that are subject to the market in my own life and at first it comprised its own chapter and it was very theoretical and i you know was trying to share how so many scholars ignored all the materiality and got very very high in the sky and every time i would write it i would realize i was doing exactly what i was critiquing which is not putting it on the ground and it's almost like i had to be dragged kicking and screaming to write about my actual life um, in scholarship, and to do it in a way that didn't feel trite or hokey or, you know, silly. You know, sometimes we get so um, trapped into a particular version of what scholarship needs to sound like and look like. And when I finally was able to break through that, um, the first thing I wrote about was my grandmother's altar. And I confess that part of it was the circumstances of when it was written. She died um, right around the time I was writing that chapter. And you know that that common refrain you hear: write what you know, write what you know. And when we went to clean out her house, and I was staring at her altar, and you know, kind of gathering those fragments, and I said, "This is the only thing that I want," you know, and, and took it home with me, um, and was in a in a real moment of grief. But I began to realize, thinking about that altar, what a a mess of commodities it was, and how there was certainly a point in my life. Um, when i would have seen it that way and 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 shaped very much by forms of um white western liturgical renewal folks who i respect and, and love many of them but but taught me almost a an adversarial uh attitude towards some of these things that were even a part of my own culture even a part of my own family um and how over time um thankfully i grew to love and and Appreciate the depth of the faith that was expressed there. Um, but I saw it, you know, the wheats and the tares all mixed up on this altar, right? Like I like I said, you know, some of the, the velas, some of the candles were just, you know, purchased at Publix. <laughs> or, you know, uh, I think you mentioned in an earlier conversation the little L'Oreal bottle filled with Lourdes Holy Water. You know, all of these things where the market and faith are so entangled. And I think when you read um Consumer culture only in terms of resistance—you miss that, you know. If you're asking, does this alter, help her resist anything? I don't know. I mean, maybe, but I do know that it's made up with things that we're supposed to want to resist. And so, for me, ultimately, separating those four fragments into separate little vignettes throughout the book um, helped me not just argue but show, you know, and invite the reader hopefully to reflect on things in their own life present as near as their own house um in which they're both you know surrounded by consumer culture and also somehow reach toward god through them and um you know i do that with the other ones i'd be happy to talk about any of the other ones as well if you'd like
1: maybe choose your second favorite one i mean did you was your your grandma's altar your first one and then you built on
0: yeah and it, it took me a long, you know, it's it's not long, it's like 10 pages or less. And it took me a very long time to write those 10 pages. Um, and then I thought, man, I'm gonna have to do more of these. And they were both thrilling and wonderful and terrifying because you know, when you put yourself on the page like that, I think especially in scholarship, it it can feel really vulnerable. Um, but the other thing I really wanted to do is interrupt this kind of um way of doing theological reflection on consumer culture in which the scholar seems always exempted from the critique you know like they're they're floating above like like you know i i I try to um, imply this in the in the chapter where i talk about Michel de sarteau you know like the voyeur uh, you know looking down on everybody they're all participating in the culture and i'm somehow exempt from it and i really wanted to write the ways in which i too am embedded in these things in in for better and and usually for worse, you know, so I I write a chapter on the hymnals of my childhood um, as things that were deeply meaningful to me, deeply formative, uh, theologically, and now as a composer who's deeply embedded in that very market, you know, people don't think of hymnals as a market, right, but it very much is, and so I wanted to kind of write in all of them, but perhaps especially in the, the fragment on hymnals, like a confession, you know, that, that judged me and showed how I am embedded in these things, even as I am deeply uh, trying to compose music that helps, you know, um, resist even, you know, um, but to see those entanglements more acutely, I guess.
1: Yeah, I want to read um, from one of your, from Salvation in the Shape of an Apple.
0: Oh, the most embarrassing one. <laughs> I, I, I should just, I should just frame this I, I I wanted to write one that was very unromantic to say like you know I you know even the computer that I'm using now, you know Apple products you know can can take on this aura of almost religious importance at times
1: I'm gonna read you a passage I really love because I think it gets us toward our next question. Yeah um, I this is a reflection on like now powerless Apple products. Like every other commodity, you right? they lied. The ruins of these discarded electronics that barely boot, now resting in an upstairs closet or in a faraway landfill, testify not only to their inability to deliver the utopias they promised, but also to their ability to help grow the very world Apple promised to help us overthrow. And, I, I, I love your own insertion there, Tony, of your own, like, this is very, you're bringing it home, like, we too lived in the ruins of our, of our failed realization of the life we felt that a product would bring us, um, or like a sort of, com- like a curation of products, right, a curation mm-hmm. of products would, would help us make possible a version of life that in the end, um, no, it doesn't boot, it's trash. It's landfill, right? And, and it need was, new,
0: and you need a replacement.
1: Needing a new one, yeah. And you have helped keep the market vibrant, and you've gone into further debt. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, this, these are from such ruins, from such, from such dashed hopes, Tony. You build, um, you build a theology. You construct. I think that's the word you theologians use. You construct a theology. <laughs> you uh, theologians I, and <laughs> you uh, construct a theology. Right at the site, I think, of our disappointments. Mm. Um, so if earlier, I think you were pointing to, you know, the something more in the objects of your grandmother's altar, like in their composition, in their poetry, right? in the feeling and, and, and experiences there. You also attend to limitation and failure, right? Um, in the failed realizations, in their, in their lies. And you do something really interesting there. Um, that, requ- that requires that the reader, as you've mentioned, they take a tour with you from Marx to Walter Benjamin. Did I say this right? <laughs> um, and even um, ruminate too on Deserteau and the way that absences and lack have not been a limit for theological uh, cry or longing. You can actually it emanate precisely from there. So for our readers, what I'd like to do is just give a couple of I'm going to tell you how I've understood the underpinnings of your construction, and then you can correct me and you can. Oh, say, I, I love she this. Or, Teach she us. can't read. Um, she can't. So I want to start with Mark says you've mentioned commodity fetish, fetish, and I think you've already attended to the way that commodities acquire. Um, a, a, an, in, an inherent value that exceeds their actual value, right? And they acquire almost, I, in your work, almost a religious, and even in Marx, you supply Marx, religious connotation, right? Should I, I'm going to go ahead
0: yeah.
1: and read. <clears throat> Transformed into a commodity, the product seems to take on a life of its own. Here's Marx. So as soon as it steps forth a commodity, it is changed into something transcendent. The recreation of the commodity for Marx is total. The exchange value ultimately concedes, excuse me, conceals the use value, rendering invisible to us the social processes that produced it. And and here's Marx again. Now divorced from its social processes of production in our minds. It abounds, he says, in metaphysical subtleties and theological niceties, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you take a turn right after this with Benjamin, Mm -hmm. right? And while Benjamin, you say, sees the insinuation of commodities into every aspect of modern life, he sees something more than Marx does, right? Marx sees the lie. Marx sees a false consciousness. Like these are these are objects that we misunderstand, we mystify they they represent to us meanings that aren't there and conceal the processes that are. Benjamin though sees more than deceptions. Instead also tracing as you write people's deepest hopes and desires. Benjamin saw how as phantasmagoria commodities do alienate people from their labor. But also how they register collective hopes and desires in myriad forms. You write he saw yearnings for a world different than it is. <clears throat> okay, so I feel like this is a really important term because you're thinking with Benjamin right around like how Eucharist, even when commodified, as I'm understanding you, even when there are these densities, these compromises. And again, I'm thinking of your grandmother's altar. Your methodology really works for me, right? Takes me to the complicity of production in, in, in Santitos, in cards, right? In print cards. That there is there something more and that there is something for, in Benjamin's work, right? There's something that is revealed in the hope for the utopia, that the participation in the, in the market of commodities signals, yeah. Am I hearing you correctly that that attains to in, in communion that, that it reflects, even when it's commodified, it is still going to, when we participate in it, still becomes even if imperfect, even if compromised, a receptacle, a container, even in a not that's even a failure of my imagination even the material by which we manifest our theological longings and that those in themselves in your work, Tony, that that is the stuff of liturgy that is not destroyed. I didn't try this language out with you before, so I don't know if you're saying it's not (laughs) destroyed, but it is not, it is that thing that gets beyond the compromising of the market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have I understood you?
0: Yeah, I'm still kind of, you know, resting on lingering with the, the phrase that you used at the beginning of this lesson, which I've appreciated when you said, you know, the sites of our disappointment. I, I think there's something really um, true about that. You know, I, I think so often, in a lot of the scholarship, we're denying that, you know, disappointment, we're, we're refusing to linger there. And I, I think that was a beautiful um, summary of the Marx-Benjamin connection. I'd add in there the Certeau, um you know, the way in which he plays into it, the kind of theologically ground that that wish image in, in the ascension. But I think the only thing I'd add is, like for Benjamin, it's it, it's it's in the failure of those mm-hmm. things that um, the dialectical image, the wish image, um, that you that you're able to see in some fragmentary way, and so. For me, it is, and I mean, I think both Benjamin and Sartre have a kind of melancholic, long, <laughs> melancholy, um, a mourning, um, born of, of the experiences of their time. And I mean, to be quite honest, how can how can we not, right? Uh, even now, especially now, perhaps. Um, and so, how do we find ways to dwell among those ruins, and um, still see God in, in those places that we're tempted, understandably so, to label as God forsaken um, but, but still, you know, hold space. And and I would say earlier, you asked me about how am I helping these fragments to form people? I don't think I'm trying to form people. I'm trying to offer a way of seeing, a way of seeing things in our own lives as both, um, fallen and shot through with all kinds of complicities and nevertheless, um, irreducible to those things by the grace of God. Um, now in terms of your question about the Eucharist, I think the other, fragment that we haven't discussed is about the commodification of communion hosts oh yeah where i I think uh it it becomes most clear i mean i tried to arrange the fragments in a particular way with the most um (laughs)
1: egregious
0: devastating critique of the ways in which we're bound up in the market even when we think we're resisting it in the commodification of communion hosts but it's not just hosts of course i mean all the materials that we use to to worship god um in a Western late capitalist culture are commodified, right? But I think if it, even the bread we're using um, uh, as the site of divine presence, as the body of Christ, as Catholics would think about it, is commodified. How, how do we um, continue to live in uh, a delusion that the Eucharist is going to help us resist that culture? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, of course, you know, thinking that through in the ways in which a, one particular company in the US makes something like 80% of communion bread across all denominations for people who use it. Um, and they have wonderful varieties of you know, gluten-free and special oh. bread for Baptists, special varieties for Catholics, but it's all made by the same, same company. Um, but which by the way emerged to serve the church's needs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so you could say, okay, well, then the answer is let's just get away from that company. Let's make our own bread. right?
1: Right. And then grace
0: will flow like an ever, you know, justice will flow like an ever flowing stream. But even then, I mean, you think about the complicities of of the flower you're using, the way you you got it there, the various privileges on which it depends to even be able to make it. Um, And, you know, I think it's exactly at those moments when we think we've most resisted (laughs) that we need to go back and and examine Mm -hmm. um, and not rest on that flash of hope is the definitive. I mean, so I'm, in a way, I'm just trying to keep an eschatological frame on the whole on the whole yeah,
1: thing. I hear that. Yeah. I mean, I hear so much in this. There's something really beautiful when I was reading your invocation of Benjamin, and I'm going to read you how this triggered for me. <clears throat> You're talking about Benjamin's uh, Berlin childhood around 1900, and you write, he recalls his childhood by offering an inventory of memories attached to the enchanted Objects of his material world, from cabinets to bicycles to sewing boxes, showing how the seemingly insignificant material of everyday life bears wishes and dreams. And um, you know, Tony, that made me think of one of my favorite movies. I don't know if you've ever seen *The Frenchville Amelie*. Amelie. I, I haven't. You haven't. You haven't. Oh. Um, she she finds um, an old box, a buried treasure that a that a former tenant of her apartment and like stowed away and it has like little tinker toys and um, she becomes like, really interested in his life and goes out to find him because she can sense that she's found a treasure. The narrator says like uh, on the order of like King Tut you know like only the discoverer of those treasures could understand the world inside this little box um <clears throat> And as we, as, I hate to this, but as we close our reflection, I want to tell you what I've read in your work or what I've seen and, and give you an opportunity to, to tell me, like, is that, is that, is that, did I missing something? Is there more? Um, so, so when I reflected on like that movie, the feeling and finding an old box, this, the nostalgia, the assignment of feeling to objects, And then in your work, I think really making a theological capacity for that, for desire, for longing, for hopes, for dreams, for fulfilled hopes, right? Like it's not all lack. It's not all loss. It's not all failure, but it is that too. It's also complicity. It's very human, right? This altar, these experiences where, for instance, in Eucharist, we are always experiencing our own complicity in this case in the market, how hard it is to resist that. We're shaped by it. And in your work, I'm hearing you say it's better to acknowledge that than to delude ourselves into thinking we can get it, we can purify the Eucharist by our own hands. And what I hear you saying is simply acknowledging that and acknowledging that there's a, a grace to it, that there's going to be more, that those things are going to be true. We're going to have, we're going to have limitations in this case in our participation in the market but that there's through our in through our presentation our attention the application of our feelings our wishes our hopes our prayers our needs into liturgy or into altar right or into this like god word activity yeah what i hear you saying is there's hope in that because divine agency, divine grace is the moreness that we can't do, right? Can't purify our own, we can't purify our own offerings. We can want them to be purer, but we can't actually get there. But I hear you intervening around grace. Is this the case?
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think that's a beautiful way to end. And we should just end with your words. Um, I will say in the end, I mean, the, the thing I was wrestling with in the end of the book is, is either leaving people in despair <laughs> or denial, right? And I see a lot of the scholarship kind of denying complicities. I was worried that my book would leave us kind of despairing at the fact that, you know, well, so there's nothing we can do, right? So we should do nothing at all, which is precisely not what I'm arguing. Um, at all. I don't think that the fullness of the kind of resistance that we want to cultivate is possible when it depends on a denial of Mm -hmm. our complicities and Mm -hmm. which are ever before us. But I also think that both denial and despair are rooted in, in a similar impoverished hope, as I call it. And that's a hope tethered only to our own human striving, that only confines the activity of God to our hands and feet a hope that only insists that it's up to us. And I guess there are risks for sure in, in um, emphasizing divine agency, no doubt. Many many theologians have rightly called a, our attention to those and we should continue to be attentive to them. But I do think that at least in the thinking about consumer culture, the pull has been so strong in the opposite direction. Mm. Um, so, so focused on grace being... Um, dependent on us. And I don't think it's always explicitly said. I think sometimes it's more implicit. But I think a hope that insists that it's not up to us is a hope worth having, at least as a theologian. And uh, that's what I'm trying to remind us of, that even when our Eucharistic worship practices and everything else we do are shaped by the market, bound up with it, they're not reducible to those things, right? My grandmother's altar is still um, there begging us to see more, um, that was a site of divine presence throughout her entire life. And uh, so I guess at the end of the day, I hope people can see both.
1: Mm, I Hostos, love that. As we say. Tony, in your own way, I, I don't feel you've made any less of Eucharist, right? Like there's no, no less of its robust power in the life of the community. It just, you've been, your vision feels um, nevertheless, right? Nevertheless, the Eucharist you know, is with us in as a means of grace to us. Thank you so much. I I I'm no Catholic, I'm a Pentecostal, so I didn't I'm new to I'm new to you, Chris, but I feel like this has been um or new new to it in this light. I feel like it's been a challenge and a, and an opportunity um to think again about like what it, what what can my hands do? What can it do? Mm-hmm. And like, what what grace is available for that incapacity or in that fragmentation. I I thank you so much for your presence in this conversation, for your book. I wish for it a wide readership and I'm looking forward to the next, but I won't put any pressure on you now.
0: Thank you so much, Erica. This has been a true pleasure. Take care. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.